Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for downloading or streaming the show. And hopefully, thank you for subscribing to Coming Up Next, the podcast. If you're not subscribed, why are you not subscribed? You should be subscribed. And that way, the show is going to automatically download for you each and every week. You will get my chats with uh, some of the world's top creatives discussing how they've made a life of their own design. One very such person who has done so in tremendous fashion, Tegan Higginbotham, uh, who was episode five of this podcast, has come back for another round of ramble action where the show's, you know, coming into uh, almost, we're almost at year three, um, and it's pretty cool to be revisiting and speaking to uh, some some of these people again and, and finding out where things are at now, uh, you know, a lot of what we discussed with Tegan uh, in the first chat, and if you haven't listened to it, um, I highly recommend going and finding it in the archives. Uh, but when we first uh, spoke about it, you know, we spoke a lot about, um, you know, stepping into what makes you unique as uh, an artist, a creative, a performer, uh, in her case, a stand-up comedian and actor, um, and she was just about to start working on a TV show called Open Slather. Uh, so now we fast forward a little bit and uh, she's done Open Slather. Um, she's also just finished uh, or had just finished working on Sideliners, the ABC show, and um, as well as Bounce and Whovians. Uh, she's just become tremendously busy. We get into that. We also talk a little bit about the controversial uh, ABC Liverpool versus Sydney FC coverage and uh, the usual kind of silly stuff which I try to mould into a second round of, uh, of rambly goodness just like this introduction. So why don't I flick the switch and press play on the interview. Tegan Higginbotham, round two in the chat cave. Let's do it. listening to our uh, other podcast um, this morning <laughs> and man it's like it was must have been almost three years ago that we did that I think it was yeah and I was thinking about it as well I haven't listened to it mind you and I I wonder what I'd said because I'm I've got a terrible memory and I'm like I know we did it but I don't know what what I was talking about at the time yeah as uh I mean, you were great. I was, um, <laughs> it was episode five, I guess, uh, and we're now into the 120s-ish. So, yeah, I was doing, I did like stupid voices in like the pre-roll intro and some of the questions I asked were questionable. Um, Ask, what was dodgy? Did I answer? <laughs> Uh, well, one of my last questions was, what's the funniest joke you've ever heard? Which uh, I, when I listened to it, I was like, that's, a really, that's just an awful question to ask someone who works in comedy. What did I say? 
you you kind of deferred away from an answer and then went into a story. Ah, that's very clever of me because even as I'm thinking now, I'm like, I don't know what I'd say about that. It'd, it'd probably be something really daft or childish, but yeah, I couldn't think of what my favourite joke would be. Yeah, I think it's just a really poor question. <laughs> um, but we, d- I mean, we did we did cover some interesting uh, topics of conversation and probably things that are relevant now still. Uh, you know, one of the things that we spoke a bit about was how we'd both just gone to our high schools at around that time to talk about what it's like to have a career for me as a filmmaker for you in the world of comedy. And, you know, you, you started talking about how it's take, it had taken you sort of to that point, which was sort of 10 years in already, until you started seeing consistent kind of work and consistent income for your work. And now you're probably coming out of your busiest patch ever. Yeah, it was, it's been a really nice year and it was consistently busy throughout the whole year. And I've not up until now experienced that as an artist where I've just known three months ahead, four months ahead that work work was there. And especially with Sideliners, which was a sports program I co-host on the ABC, next, co-hosted on the ABC this year with Nicole Livingston. That was one of the very first shows where I knew that they still wanted me for the 12th episode, even in the first one. Like I was guaranteed to be there. Whereas usually I'm always a guest for one or two episodes and I'm always still feeling like I, I'm, I'm there and I'm validated and it's wonderful, but you always still feel like you're auditioning a little bit because you hope they get you back. And, and for me, it's probably really negative. But I, the sign of whether I did well in that episode was whether somebody got me back again. So it was just, you were never, never quite happy because if you weren't asked back it was like oh I must have done terribly instead of oh they just picked someone else this time um so it was really nice just to be able to relax and enjoy the process without having to be in my head about that sort of stuff yeah that would that would be uh I guess very I guess relaxing is the right word because you're not there's no pressure I mean there's pressure but the pressure is to deliver the work not to impress upon people so that you get another job um and I guess another thing that we sort of were talking about was uh, was stepping into what makes you unique or what makes you uh, the kind of artist that you are. Um, and, you know, uh, over the last few years, you've really kind of moved into this world of uh, sport and really sort of really engaged with that. I think when we last spoke, you were in the process of working on Open Slather. And since then, you know, you, you've gone on to do Whose Line Is It Anyway? You've, you know, you've, you've done Whovians, uh, but, you know, a lot of what you've been sort of working towards or working in is, is the world of sport. Yeah. Uh, how have you found that sort of really stepping into that side of things as opposed and, and I guess stepping away a little bit from acting for the time being? It was less stepping away from acting. I actually took a conscious step back from stand-up comedy this year and enforced that I needed to take off about nine months because I wasn't loving that. And the problem, I think, with comedy is that you can just keep booking gigs and even though you're not loving it and you're not pushing yourself or feeling creatively fulfilled anymore, you just keep trudging along and doing it and then you realise you're that bitter person at every gig every night being like, no, stand-up shit, and I didn't want to be that person. So because I had this this luxury and this comfort, as we said, of actually knowing I had some other work coming in, I was able to step back from stand-up. And um, the timing of me getting to do this work with sport, in particular the AFLW this year, was just 
I mean, that that I, I got two for Channel 7 do the pre-game coverage for the AFLW season and that first game at Icon Park between Carlton and Collingwood where it was a lockout and people were literally climbing the walls to try and get in and sitting there in the middle of the ground watching the stands fill up, it was, it was one of the most uh, unique and special feelings and I felt felt that night like I'd been a part of something and in my career I, I haven't felt that very much of like no this was this this moment really meant something special so my timing was bloody great <laughs> in that I, I actually had that opportunity to do that thing so and, and it's really nice as well that I've you know when I did the the boxing stand-up show Million Dollar Tegan which was years ago the idea of seeing a female in a combat sport was still a bit of a gimmick. It was still unique. The idea of doing a show about Brendan Favola and being a female comic talking about football was a, was a gimmick. Now it's, it's, why wouldn't you? And I love the fact that I've gotten to witness this change where there are heaps of women talking about this stuff now. And it's, in fact, it's, it's strange and bizarre when a commentary team or a, a channel puts together their, their, their people who are going to be covering an event and they don't include females there. It's, it's, it looks already very dated and that's, that's really cool. Yeah, it is very cool. And one of the keep, – I'll keep referencing episode five yeah. of the show uh, – was the stigma around female comedian or female actor or yeah. female, you know, having to preface – the profession with the word with the gender yeah. uh which it now feels like we've moved beyond that yeah we really have and it's i haven't been asked that question in such a long time what does it feel like to be a female comedian and i i as, as i've mentioned i can't remember exactly what i said but i know it used to piss me off so much and it was such a belittling and such a blocking question i haven't been asked it in a while and you know, especially you look at the latter six months of this year about what's happened with uh, Me Too and all of the wine scene stuff and women really taking a, a leadership role and fighting for their equality in a very different way than they have before. It It has just changed not only so much about how I feel accepted in the workplace, but even how I'm viewing things. And not to sound like the most <laughs> kind of basic bitch here, but I um, I used to really love watching... Love Actually, and I finally this year sat down and watched it again and it is a diabolical film of every scene is problematic. Like every scene is a woman either being silent or harassed or being called fat or the crux of the scene is let's just all shag each other and this will be discussed in Parliament. Like one of the things that blows my mind is the Prime Minister of England sees a female co-worker being harassed and also has a feeling has feelings for that co-worker. So what does he do? He fires her and it's, it's all meant to be like, oh, yeah, that's understandable. She's harassed by the President of the United States of America. So they, they kick her out and that's, that's fine in the film. That's, that's an okay thing. It's like, no, that's really bad. That's completely bad. You just... You just hurt the victim, actually, but the whole film is is that way. And I think one of the most uh, one of the love stories they hold up the highest is between Colin Firth and the woman who doesn't speak. <laughs> so it's like it's such an issue. But these things, I don't think I was I was seeing as of recently as you know maybe even two years ago. I wasn't noticing these things, and now I feel like I've I've had, kind of had my eyes opened a little bit. It feels like the dust's been shaken up a bit, but which which is strange because I I saw your post about that, and it's such a well loved Christmas film. 
I want to say particularly by women. Uh, I mean... Yeah, because we... I still love romance. I'm a big romance fan. I love love stories. Um, but And even this year I'm seeing it is still making a lot of the top 10, 10 lists of best Christmas films to watch. And it is, it is a bad film. It's a bad movie. Just watch Die Hard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Die Hard has a great message. <laughs> Yippee-ki-yay. Uh, yeah, I, and it's, it is strange that a film that would be so apparently misogynistic now would be so um, warmly received for like 10, 12 years or something, however long ago it, it came out. Yeah. I, I think one thing I still have to acknowledge is that the film is slick. The editing is really is really great and the performers that they chose are really wonderful. I mean, you still can't deny that Emma Thompson's performance in the bedroom when she breaks down upon finding out that her husband's having an affair, that performance is so subtle and just, yeah, really crushingly good. And I think that for a while as well I was watching those moments instead of looking at the messages that the film is putting out there. Yeah. Oh, and Liam Neeson constantly talking to his like six-year-old stepchild about shagging people. It's gross. It is disgusting. <laughs> uh, so let's, uh, let's, let's go back to you for a second. Um, and, you know, we, we, we kind of left off the last one you were about to write city of love and you were writing as we said for open slather i mean what what was the process i guess uh, of that like you know you you were saying how it was weird to be writing for other people because at that point in time you'd only ever written comedy for yourself so what was it like uh, sort of beyond that when it was all sort of putting into practice and when it was starting to be performed and then screened uh, Open Slather was a really interesting learning experience for me because I'd not been in that sort of a writer's room where it was just, you know, uh, I want to say off the top of my head, 15 writers every day just coming in and trying to slam out sketches. And in that process, I found some really inspiring writers who I thought brought out better work in me and that was really valuable, that experience. Um, but I think I learnt more about how I would not want to operate in the future. You know, it was a show that had a lot of cooks in the kitchen at all time, uh, all time, so I should say. And it was, um, yeah, it was really interesting as well seeing how from the stage when you write a sketch and it's there on the paper in front of you and you think it's pretty solid and you've got other people telling you it's pretty solid, then it will get changed a little bit by another writer, then a producer will change it a little bit, then a director will change it a little bit, then a performer will put their own spin on it and change it a little bit and then you hand it over to the editors and they've realised that the sketch is too long so they cut 30 seconds out of it including sometimes the setup or in one case the actual punchline and then it ends up on screen and you go, that is wow, that is not what was what was written. How does this happen? And it just, I learned that in that process of getting sketch, uh, yeah, from a team of writers onto the screen, it's actually really hard to keep the integrity of the sketch intact. And I think this is why a lot of the time I'm really drawn to sketch groups that are very small um, and maybe do a lot of, not the editing themselves, but uh, the group that pops to mind is Auntie Donna, which I've been fangirling out about since the very first time I saw them at Comedy Festival years ago. Their work still makes me laugh so much. And I, I, I'm sure that they have sketches that don't always hit the mark. I personally find most of them really entertaining, so I can't point one out right now. But their stuff is just so, there's a feeling uh, of real authenticity to it, that the people in the room were capturing the moment and... And it hasn't been spoiled by having, yeah, 
too many big heads kind of arguing over it. And yeah, that was kind of what I learned from Open Slather that real good sketch is hard to do. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, it's not surprising in the sense that we don't see a lot of good uh, sketch comedy network shows, um, you know, really, I guess, since the days of the full frontal fast forward. Yeah. And I think some of it is also that you, um, you know, you find a group that, you, that is really funny and that does good work. But then they, uh, then you start collaborating with people who have TV in mind and maybe comedy isn't their background or have a slightly different intention of what they think the joke should be. And it's once again just that thing of diluting what was that original spark, why it was so good at the beginning. And um, I think if you know if you want to make good sketch comedy, you almost need to stand back and just go, well, we trust that you guys know what you're doing and then let it fail because it's been an epic, beautiful failure as opposed to just a really bland pc you know marketable thing yeah yeah because and i suppose sketch in particular has its own sort of shape and rhythm and when it's in that uh creation stage that's where it's kind of uninhibited or where it's kind of taking its own life Uh, and then when it goes through all those processes and filters i suppose you lose I'm sure it would be the same. I'm sure musicians might have a very similar take that, you know, when they are, maybe there's this built when you bring in a really good producer. I'm not sure. Maybe it's not a strong analogy. But, yeah, you want it to stay quite pure, I think, for sketch comedy. And also, if you're going to be topical, it's got to be really, really topical. I remember during Open Slather, one of the other uh, kind of messages that we got filtered down to us was there was to be no jokes about the war, nothing war-related, nothing terrorism-related, nothing overly political in some cases, which for a show that we initially thought was going to be very hard-hitting and edgy and really, you know, say something, that just that one little directive, given the news of the time, actually felt really like you were closing yourself off from the reality of what everybody was thinking about and feeling about and in a lot of cases joking about. Yeah. Yeah, right. It's Yeah, you would have thought it would have been open slather. <laughs> You'd think so, wouldn't you? But no, very very minimal slather. Yeah. A <laughs> little bit of slather. Bit of slather. Uh, and I guess from after that, I'm probably missing a few beats, but on the other end of the spectrum, you did Whose Line Is It Anyway, which is fully improvised sketch comedy yeah absolutely bonkers crazy terrifying fun stuff um and legitimately improvised i uh it's the one thing i want to emphasize always because people go go on how much do you know in advance and i'll be honest there are some tv shows where you may be given a clue if it's a game show or something what you might be talking about so you can do a little bit of research here and there just so you don't look like a complete daft cow on the air which is very kind of them Whose line is it anyway is aggressively they do not want you to know anything to the extent that one time I was walking backstage at the old Elstonwick studios where they shot it and I nearly accidentally walked into the prop room and I had people being like don't go in there because they get given this book from the I don't know the whose line gods I'm not sure who the god is that sends this book but this is the rule book and you cannot like if you if you choose to buy into that franchise you cannot deviate from the rules and the rules are we know nothing i mean we, we we practice an awful lot of stuff with other scenarios and other games like you need to understand the the mechanics of the game in order to play it but the actual subject matter is yeah completely hidden and that is at its most scary during the sing about it songs where you just gotta come up with a song which is i mean singing in public was already a scary enough idea for me let alone making that shit up so yeah pretty pretty intense but very fun and meeting 
you know, a few comedians who I hadn't really had an opportunity to work with before, like Bridie Connell and Tom Walker, who are just fabulous, fabulous human beings. Yeah. What was it like? What was the audition process for that like? Um, I think I went through about three stages and the first one just felt really, really casual. We just, you know, got brought together with a group of four people and just, yeah, you, you know, you play games and you just improvise and that was that was really fun. Um, the second stage was a little bit more, f- was, you know, you took it up a step. We had a, a small audience watching us. Um, and I remember in that particular audition, Tommy Little, who ended up being the host, was actually playing the games and... I'd always had him in my mind because I met him on Studio A years ago in this this host role. I know he's an incredible stand-up, but I hadn't seen him improvising before. And I came away from that going, oh, my God, he's an incredible improviser, really fun. Um, so it just made so much sense to me when they gave him that host role because he can just – he can do it all. He's the Hugh Jackman of comedy. Um, and then I think there was another far more formal audition after that and – in that audition, this was another really, you know, pleasant thing is there were, it was Susie, Cal, Bridie, myself all in the room. And in our experience, you just don't get four women on the same show. It doesn't happen. So we're all like, oh, deep down knowing that one of us or two of us are not going to make it into the final group. And then we all got through and it was incredible. Yeah. That's amazing. And I mean, you kind of gave given a little bit of insight, but what was it like to see, I mean, this is a franchise that's 20 ish years old um and yeah what was it like to see that uh, because i i could imagine that a lot of people listening to this would have grown up watching it Mm -hmm. or have watched it in their whatever stage of life what was it like to see that sort of from the inside it was it was uh really special knowing that it was something because I used to watch those I used to watch the show during year 12 drama class so we'd watch those guys playing a game then we'd get up and play the game and learn what we could have done better you know and broken it all down and stuff like that um so actually then realizing that you were becoming part in a small way of that world was really special um at the same time I really admired that the producers wanted to try and put their own spin on it however they could. Our stage, in my opinion, was just far prettier. It was really colourful and really lovely. And the band we had um, was was exceptional. And in um, the the US version in particular, the band kind of looks like they look like they come from a church group. Like they're very, you know, very pleasant. They don't have a massive role in it. But our band, led by Kit Warhurst, was just so exceptional. And even in rehearsals, they would just... They, they can just do everything. They were the most talented musicians I've ever met. So it really brought a very different different feeling into the room and I liked that. Yeah. And when the show, when the show went to air, what was it like? Because um, I, guess, I guess maybe that was the first sort of long run sort of thing that you did. Yeah. Um, I wasn't in every single episode but I, we'd filmed it all beforehand, so I did know what was coming up, which was really great. Uh, it's not wonderful, but as you know, as a learning thing, I probably should do this more, but I would prefer never to watch back anything that I do on television ever. I would like not to see that, um, just because my face is weird and I don't want to look at it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was really fun. We all got together and watched the first episode and it was nice and it was really interesting seeing how they'd edit it down. Sometimes what I think was about an hour and a half of content into the nice, you know, nice little half an hour show that got put out there and seeing what made it in and what made it out. So I I really enjoyed, once again, just seeing what the first product was and then how TV whittles it down. And I think for Whose Line, they did a really, really nice job. 
Did you feel like or did you notice that things changed I- in your career through this? Through like, Did you feel like you got a bit more exposure? Um, oddly enough, it, it all feels like it's grown so in- incrementally. It's not felt like there's been one huge swell. Um, yeah, it's all just kind of built little bit by bit by bit. I realised though most of my work has been on ABC and Foxtel, either through Screen, Comedy Channel or Fox Footy, which is still not the most uh, most viewed channels that are out there. So in some ways it's really, really nice. But in other ways I quite like that I'm still a bit, I don't know, I'm a bit niche. I, I don't get recognised and I like that. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so was Bounce the first sort of uh, big sporting thing that you were asked to do that's a very good question uh it's certainly been one of the ones that has become regular the 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 earliest front bar was also really nice in that friday front bar they got me on their show a couple of times and i'm such a huge fan of that show um but bounce was the first time the first program where i yeah i was coming back on a regular basis and could get comfortable with the guys and figure out, you know, how to work with these three people who career-wise had just come at everything from such a vastly different direction. You know, Jason Dunstall, Danny Frawley, Cam Mooney, all from playing careers, complete experts in their field. And then there's little old me who's like, hello, I wrote a play. Like it's, you know, it's really, really different. Um, but yeah, it's been nice being able to get comfortable in that in that space as well. What was it like for you when you, like, was it an intimidating environment to step into? I was told that it would be. Um, I had a few people kind of going, you know, just make sure you stand up for yourself in there and give me really strong directives on what to wear, what not to wear, because it was a very, you know, male-dominated industry, blah, 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 blah. And I have found Fox Footy one of the friendliest buildings to walk into. The people are delightful. Um, and, yeah, it's it's not been intimidating at all, actually. It's it's interesting in that the guys that work there, in particular your Jasons and your, your Danny Frawleys and all that, they are so busy during the football season that once it starts for them, most times I encounter them I feel like they're exhausted because I see them on Sunday after a weekend of them flying all around the country covering that many games and they are, they're tired and you can tell they're tired. So it's sometimes hard because I feel like I'm the one who's rocking up being like, yeah, I just had a great time at home. I just, just watched the game. I made a pasta. It was really cool. Um, there's that little bit of a disconnect there. But otherwise, no, it's not intimidating at all. It's funny. I had a similar experience with some of the work that I've been doing recently as well where – you go into an environment and people are like, oh, watch out for so-and-so, they're a real asshole," or such-and-such has got such a temperament or, you know, bad things are said about people and then I meet them and, and they're like, they're fine, they're, yeah. they're lovely people. I mean, maybe I'm getting their good side or maybe I can relate to them in a different way but I don't know, There's, I feel like people, there are certain people that like to be dramatic about the way. I, I think it can be that. I think sometimes... You know, gossip is, I'm sure that it's not a new thing. Gossip is a bitch of a thing. And you've always got to ask, are people being gossiped about because they are an asshole, or is it because they're really successful at the moment? And that does bring out a different side in people. Is it because they're female? Because females who are driven and and exert power, it's really often perceived in a very different way from, I think, that if men do it. And then sometimes there's just the weird 
chemical thing that happens between two people is some people click and some people don't. And I'm trying to take those moments where I clearly haven't clicked with someone and the conversation doesn't flow as easily. I'm trying to take that less personally these days and just realise that it is a puzzle with, with humans and if you fit, that's nice. If you don't, it's not that you're wrong or that they're wrong. It's just that that wasn't the right puzzle piece. I'm really trying to see that because, you know, sometimes you'd be at a party and it's like, every single conversation is difficult. And you're like, why is this so hard? Why? And then you walk into another party and you're like, let's all be friends forever. And it's it's not those, it's not anybody's fault. It's just how it is sometimes. And yeah, it can also just be the energy that you bring to the room on that day. So many factors, but um, yeah. Have you been on the receiving end of any of that poor uh, gossip? I don't know, maybe. Oh, now I'm going to think about it and never sleep. I'm sure I have. I'm sure I have. Um, you know, it's, it's, it is unfortunately very human nature to, to talk about people. It's, I'm, I'm sure everybody's trying to better themselves and not do it, but we do because everybody's an asshole and we just do. We gossip. It's horrible. And I'm sure people say things about me, but I'm, I don't know about it. So that's nice. That's good. I couldn't imagine anyone saying anything bad about you killed a guy but i don't think many people know about it so it's all right yeah and he deserved it (laughs) yeah he deserved it and so you know from from bounce you know you then was it from bounce that you then asked to start doing stuff with the aflw and then eventually sideliners yeah it all just kind of pulled into this nice bubble of me getting to be involved um so with Sidelines, I was uh, lucky enough to be a part of that from the very first brainstorming sessions, which was really exciting. Um, and I got to, it was a really lovely feeling. I got to be locked, I was locked in as co-host and got to audition with other potential hosts. And it was first of all fascinating seeing everybody who came through because every single person was great. Like I think if you're being asked to come in and audition for things, and this is another thing I've learned, it's you've already proven that you're very good. So that's already the compliment. And every person who came in brought something really different and really unique. And I was not helpful because I was like, yeah, they're wonderful. Then the next person comes in and is like, oh, no, it's that one. And then the next person, like I'm not helpful in the slightest. Um, and it was more just about them finding the right chemistry, I suppose. Um, but yeah, it was really nice to see how it grew and how it changed. And then they brought on Nicole Livingston, who I fangirl out about so heavily because I think she's the best and what she brought to it. So that was very fun. And with the AFLW, it was interesting being with people like Sam Lane, who is just such a gung-ho journalist. And we'd be, I'd go to her house to get our makeup done before the game. And then we'd hop in a cab and head out to whatever oval we were, we happened to be stationed at. Sorry, which we happened to be covering. And there was never a second for her where she had time for chit-chat. She was always, always on her phone checking details, always online checking stats. Like she was just so dedicated. It was, it was really incredible getting to just sit back and watch her and not be doing as much work as she was on the way there. I'm like Facebooking people and she's like, tell me the information. I need it before we go to air. It was really great. And with Sideliners, what was, how long was the run for that? 12 weeks. And so, what was it? What was it like in terms of the structure of, and you know, what was this, what was a week structured like? 
Um, so for a lot of the writers, they'd be in there from Monday. Um, the producers definitely, like it was a full week, a full five days a week job for them. Um, for me, I'd come in for three or four, which sometimes we'd just be shooting sketches. Other times it was writing, other times it was research. And then on Friday, because it was live to air, we'd just start right early in the morning, going through all the news for the week, making sure we knew what we wanted to cover. Do we have the right guests? Do we have the right angles? Do a big rehearsal and then go to air. Do you feel like all of the work that you've done over the last sort of 10 years, particularly stuff that you were doing on Twitter uh, in terms of news-relevant comedy sound bites, do you feel like all of that put you in a really good position to be able to sort of nail this kind of job? To a degree. I mean, it's, it's certainly helped me just to try and keep my level of awareness up as to what was happening. I think with things like social media and there is a lot of negativity around social media and even I have days where I'm like, I can't look at this stuff, it's just too much. But every time you put out content, whether it is a tweet, whether it is an Instagram post, it is your brand and it just has the potential to reach another person who doesn't know you and that person could just be somebody who becomes a fan, it could be an arsehole who decides that they're going to hate on you for the rest of their life or it could be a producer or a director or somebody who's looking for someone to collaborate with and it's, that's why I'm, you know, I try to be very careful with what I'm putting out there in a way Uh, but yeah, even if it wasn't always directly helping me to fulfil the work later on down the track, it was was putting my name out there. Yeah, right. Uh, and I guess being on social media was probably not pleasant for you after the um, the Liverpool versus Sydney FC match. Look, it was interesting. Um, it was the first time I'd been associated with, what would you call it, like a, a controversy. Um, although not that controversial. I didn't, you know, I didn't pick up a hooker down an alleyway or anything like that. But, you know, some of the other controversy. It was, um, it was strange in that I was, yeah, doing this this broadcast and it wasn't going well for so many reasons um and unfortunately what there was was breaks in that broadcast where I had time to just look at my phone and I knew already that people were just piling on this thing and it was a really scary feeling knowing that you've got to go back on again and that given the time constraints there is very little I personally could do to change anything that was coming up and it was just like oh my god this is full-on but I look back on it now and it's it's quite amusing and one thing that I found fascinating was that for about maybe between 24 to 48 hours I just couldn't look at my phone because it was just like boom boom abuse violence like really really aggressive stuff and you're like wow how is how is this how is this the case where has this come from and then it just all stops and goes away and and it's a really weird cycle like it it comes and goes with the news cycle of just uh, of yeah hate 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 nothing um so you know it's if anybody ever does find themselves in that position there's so much truth to just turn your phone off for a day or two ignore it and it goes away and it's quite remarkable yeah yeah right and so much of um uh and i I guess so much of being in performing arts and being in well in the arts in general or probably any profession really is it's a confidence game and I couldn't imagine what it would be like. I mean I was in London and I there was a live stream on Facebook of the match and I started seeing comments that people were making popping up I was like what the fuck is going on here yeah I had a friend who was living in Qatar at the time and 
Um, and, and he found out about it and was messaging me being like, hey, are you okay? What's going on? The way I think the way I sum it up the most in how big it felt in that bubble for a couple of days was I've got a dear friend who was really ill at the time and had just been in hospital for the second time undergoing some pretty, pretty heavy surgery. And I went in the day after it all happened to see him. And the first question he asked was like, hey, are you okay? <laughs> it's like, mate, that is not, that is not how this, this is meant to go, this interaction. But um. Yes, it was big and, and on, a, on a wider scale, I do have such an issue with the way some people operate on social media. But there's also been another thing that I've realised in the past few months, which is I've got a couple of people who I'm friends with, pretty close with, and they uh, really enjoy trolling people. It is not an aggression thing for them. It is a fun thing for them. Um, and I see the way they operate on social media and they're, they're really quite horrible, actually. And they, they, they target people. And for them, it's a bit of a laugh. It's a bit of fun. Um, and it's been interesting, although I don't think that that is the right way to operate by any means, it's been interesting seeing that it's not, it's not always from a place of anger. It's from a place of boredom or for a place of, as I said, kind of misguided sense of fun. Um, you know, we're just, you know, we're just having a bit of a laugh. And yeah, I mean, similar to what we're saying before with how, you know, gossip can go a certain way or sometimes the chemistry doesn't mix with these sorts of things. It's like, don't always take it personally because you just don't know what that other person is going through or what they're feeling or what their intention is because it's written. You just can't you can't always gather it and it could be it could be just a joke it could be something that they think is quite funny and harmless and i think a lot of the time a lot of those things are probably coming from a place of low self-esteem or i i once got a really long message on facebook from this woman telling me why and how i should kill myself like just his essay of of detail and I, this was, this was a good couple of years ago and I'd never received anything like this in my life and was just like, oh my God, what do you do with this? And I, I got really angry about it. And my first thought was like, okay, you want to, you want to say those words to me? Fine. I'm going to screen cap that. I'm going to put this all online so people can see what you do in your spare time. That This is what you say to women that they should kill themselves. And then it was a public, like it was, she didn't have a private profile on Facebook I could click on it and I could see her photo and her name and her where she lived and all that sort of stuff and she was just she's just this mum living in the outer suburbs like she had photos of her kids up online um like she just lived I, I knew the suburb where she lived it was really strange and it I spoke to a couple of people about it who got this stuff on the regular and we all kind of had this thought of like what if this was just her bad moment what if this was something stupid that she did or she vented and for some reason she picked this, you know, this made-up imaginary person that she doesn't know online and she just decided to target them? Then I go and put this stuff online, make her life even worse and then instead of her just being upset and venting, she does something more drastic. And I know that doesn't mean that those sorts of actions are acceptable but once again it just kind of asked me to try and think about it in a slightly different way. Yeah. Yeah, show some... Uh compassion I guess or some empathy even in the face of being spat at with poison I mean it's that's I think to do that to write that sort of stuff you're clearly in a really dark place you have to be normal people don't sit down and write those words so whether you are struggling whether you are just completely at the edge with time I don't know what's going on but that's not a normal thing so it can't be you can't just react to it as if you're having a, a, a normal interaction yeah 
every day in the, you know, especially on news sites such as news.com, you'll see that somebody is like, oops, somebody was in hot water today because they said this or somebody had to apologise for this, blah, blah, or Twitter is in an uproar because of this. You know, the incident this week was, um, oh, I think it might have been last week, sorry, Ash London, who's a radio presenter who I've met once, really lovely person, said something about one of the One Direction people um, and that has blown up online to just the craziest, craziest levels. And on one hand, you know, you read the comments from the One Direction people and they're pretty funny. Like they are. They're just so, they're so angry with this Ash London woman. They're so angry with her because she said that he had strange facial hair or something. And you know what I mean? And it's, it is, it's very strange. But I also have that, that different insight now into what her life is feeling like at the moment, which is... She probably can't look at her social media. She'll have a lot of friends texting her, asking if she's okay and making her think about it. She's probably hearing her name mentioned on some radio and stuff like that. And it's really weird. Like the moment it became weirdest for me with all the soccer situation was when my dad had been listening to talkback radio and heard them talking about it and was like, they're saying everything wrong. Like, that's not what happened. Do you want me to call up and tell them that they're getting it wrong? It's like, Jesus Christ, no, don't call anybody please don't call Neil Mitchell, please don't do this, let them let them have their new cycle for a little while. But it was really interesting seeing what I'd done in my work slightly impact my family and it upset them a little bit because they were like, but this just isn't the truth. They're saying stuff that isn't the truth. And I'd put up a couple of days before a photo of me in, uh, I think it was in a commentary box before a football game. Um, I'd been doing some radio up there and I'd intentionally misspelt some words in the post I wrote for a joke I'd written a joke it had been apparently screen capped by news.com and put up online like you know showing how clearly incompetent I was because I, I didn't even know how to spell and it's like ah you know just got to ignore it but I would have people sending me screenshots of that which I didn't really need to see but this is what you know Ash London is going through at the moment and it's even if you don't take it all personally it is still a really big disruption yeah, and it must be very challenging to not take it personally because it's all being thrown at you um, and you're a person. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, what was it like within the team in the sense of, you know, when you were in those kind of in-between segments, were you guys talking about what was like, were you going, this is not going the way that we'd hoped or was it just kind of like silence or... Some people genuinely weren't aware. They hadn't checked the social media yet. So at the end of the show, they got quite the awakening for me it was interesting because my role on the show hadn't come across clearly I was meant to be the person from AFL who was there to ask the questions why does this game matter why are we here who should we be focusing on I was meant to be that outside eye and that clearly didn't come across well enough which I understand but there were you know there were other people working on the show who are mad football fans and do actually put a lot of time and effort into furthering the game. And I think for them to be having a lot of shit, you know, thrown at them would probably have felt really different because it's like, nah, they, they, they love it. Like they absolutely love it and they're so respectful to it and it's clearly just something, a broadcast that hasn't gone well. But I think it would have felt, you know, quite differently for them because they're, yeah, that's their, their number one sport, yeah. And did you feel uh, a, a negative flow-on effect, you know, in the, conversely to, say, bounce or sidelines where there's a positive sort of flow-on effect? Did you feel there was a negative flow-on effect from that for your work? I was scared that there would be and there wasn't. I was really scared in my head of going like, oh, my God, has this just has this stopped everything, blah, blah, blah. But 
you realize once you're in the industry that everybody who is in the industry has experienced this at one point or another. They, they, they know what it's about. They understand that it's not a thing. No, it didn't. In fact, I was saying that, you know, you get a lot of phone calls when this sort of stuff happens. A couple of the calls that meant an awful lot to me were from people who were like, ah, I've been through it, just ignore it. You know, one in particular was from Limo, who I know is outrageously busy and, you know, he, he's, he doesn't have a lot of time, but he took the time to call me and had a big long chat about how just ignore it. It's not the end of the world. And those sorts of things really did help at the time. Yeah. Now, one of the things that you and I constantly sort of discussing or talking about is the idea of kind of striking while the iron's hot in terms of your own projects and I guess I kind of prefaced this by saying at this particular point you'd stepped away from acting or comedy Um, but concurrently you've been working on a lot of your own projects including more Watson shows. Yeah Um, Watson is you know, I've been working with Adam McKenzie and Liam Ryan for many, many years now. And for me, that's almost, I know this, it is still work to a degree, but that's a, that's a, a sort of a holiday project for me. Like it is purely about what do we feel like doing? Do we feel like trapping people in a jail and scaring them? Do we feel like doing a show about the life education van? Like what do we feel like? So that's been a very just, that's a joyous kind of project to take part in. But I've also tried to, in between everything, keep writing. Um, I'm working on a project at the moment with some guys. It's hopefully progressing nicely. You never know with these things. But, yeah, even I think even when you're in these times where the work is, is rolling along really nicely, I try to still be, you know, looking forward further enough to go, well, that job can't keep going forever. So... What are you going to do after that? But also, as I say that, it's, you know, it's a few days before Christmas and because I had such a, a great full year and I do feel really lucky, I've been nice to myself and just gone, just have some time off. Let your brain rest for a little while. And it's something that's been articulated to me at many times from different people in my career of you work hard when the work is there and, of course, you're creating all the time, of course, you're pushing, but you have to set holidays for yourself or you will burn out. And also you need to have life experiences, I guess, to have fuel for the fire. You, you absolutely do. I mean, it's just from the outside eye, and this is why I find people like, say, Dave Hughes really, really good at his job is because he lives a very different life now from when he w- would have first started stand-up. You know, he's now clearly, as we see in the news, like he's got a lot of money, he's very successful, all of his work revolves around being on television, the media, like it's very, very different. But I think he still puts in a real effort to finding that stand-up that is thoroughly relatable. And and when he is talking about himself, he's also beautifully self-deprecating. Um He's, he, you know, I, I saw him again do stand-up recently and it was really remarkable. But I think, yeah, you've got to still find those times to connect with people, connect with just normal life, you know. You've still got to clean your kitchen, clean your toilets, do all that sort of stuff because what everybody does and it want, it's what makes everybody interesting in my mind. Yeah. How would you have looked at your career early on as a success and how would that idea have kind of evolved for you now? It's tricky because my, and I know I did speak about this in the last podcast, me, it was always being in action films. Uh, I always wanted my career to end up in some big movies in Hollywood and that's a really bad, bad sort of 
goal to set for yourself because anything under that is like, oh, I didn't quite get there. And I have to be very good to remind myself that, you know, that that was quite lofty and ambitious, like the child who tells himself they're going to go to the moon and all that sort of stuff. Um, So I think now it's more of just whether I'm happy, if you can be happy in what you're doing, you know. I heard somebody had a really fascinating conversation with someone yesterday who said that after all these studies, they found the optimal amount of money for somebody to be earning is $70,000. Any more than that and your happiness doesn't grow anymore. Below that, you might be struggling a little bit. Things get quite hard. But that sort of amount, you're going to be happy. And when you think about that, you're like, yeah, it's you don't have to strive for money goals. I mean, of course, being in a Hollywood film probably would be very fun. But I think if you found something that's making you happy and you're happy to be going to work every day, that's probably the best gauge I think you never know in a few years time I might be a millionaire and be like fuck that I got a yacht but um no (laughs) I don't think it's gonna happen but yeah I think that that's probably the way to gauge it right and what have you found to be the best formula for your own happiness um yeah no as we touched on at the beginning no having a little bit of security was really good in this industry, routine and and that comfort of knowing what's coming up is something that's rare. And when I had that, it did help, um, which is, is really tricky to come by. So it's something that I hope not to rely on all the time because I might not get that period again. But it did actually give me a sense of comfort so I could relax a little bit more and finding the balance. Yeah. Yeah, cool. And you're about to go on a little jaunt i'm going on a jaunt overseas i've been trying to learn french all year so which for anybody who listens to another podcast i do called uh, about the great british bake-off um all i talk about is 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 paris and wanting to be a big old francophile and i tried to learn french this year i think it's gone terribly but um i'm gonna head back over there for a while and stop in at london for a little bit and just do touristy stuff no work just you know eat cakes and look at clocks it's gonna be great and go to that train station where you can push a thing through a thing. That train station. Get out of my goddamn house. Platform nine and three quarters. Yes, I will be going there. I'm going to Harry Potter World. Oh, my God. It's going to be the best. Actually, no, sorry. It's not Harry Potter World. That's in LA. I'm going to Harry Potter Studios, um, which you're like, whatever, because you've worked with the director of Harry Potter. So for you, it's child's play. But um, I'm very excited. And it was very exciting. I've never actually mentioned that on the podcast before. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I just throw you in it? No, no, that's all right. Well, you're a bit special in my mind, so there you go. Oh, that's cool. I did watch all the Harry Potter films before I had an interview with him. What did you think of them? I actually really enjoyed them. Mm-hmm. I watched them all in about three days. They're nice. The last two, in my mind, are just masterpieces. I think that they are stunning, beautiful films. Yeah, they are. They're very good films. Um, I really enjoyed the one... Oh, I'm not going to talk about this because I can't remember the name. It, guess that you're going to say the prisoner of azkaban because i'm i'm wondering if with the the taste that you have if that's the one it's about time travel um they made the school look really different really artistic no no i liked the one with all the the challenges ah that's my favorite one goblet of fire yeah it's wonderful yeah i really i really enjoyed the kind of uh tension that was built through the through the i don't know it's like professional wrestling it's all a big pantomime yeah well, speaking of that, you took me to my very first Mexican wrestling match the other day and I didn't think that standing at the side of a ring yelling out, fuck you, ref, was going to be as enjoyable as it was, but oh my, best night ever. Yeah, that was a good night. That, that was a particularly good show to go to, I think, for anyone who hadn't been to um, a, wrestling, a live wrestling event. Lucha Fantastica put on a very good show. Yeah, it was remarkable. It was a really, 
engaging type of theatre that I'd never seen before. And what was really intriguing for me was the audience. I mean, the performers were incredible and the stunts they did were outrageously good. Um, Seeing Carlo Cannon up on stage in full swing was really, really great. But the audience knew their role. They knew that they had to yell, that they were to interact. That's the whole point. But they never overstepped that role. Like there was never that guy who just took it too far. And it was really fun being a part of a crowd where you could be raucous but never but never, yeah, never aggressive. Yeah. And there's, there's another one coming up actually in the middle of the year next year called House of Hardcore, which, <laughs> which will probably be more gruesome, but uh, probably just as crazy and engaged. House of Hardcore. I'll have, to, I'll have to go and check it out. I don't know why I handed you the mic for that particular moment. That was, that was weird. You didn't really, there was nothing really to contribute. No, I had to, to lock in that I'm definitely going. You kind of put me on the spot there, but I will go now. Yeah. <laughs> um, Tegan, thank you for uh, shooting the shit with me for a second time, um, 125-odd episodes later. Congratulations for you on doing 125 episodes later. Most people get about 12 eps in and then, and then ditch their podcast, so that's, that's really remarkable. Oh, thank you. I am, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty proud of the fact that I've persevered with it. I definitely get to a lot of Mondays and feel like, oh, I have to edit my podcast. And I do love the creative practice of it but sometimes it it does feel a bit like a a discipline like something that I have to sort of focus on which is a great thing to have on a weekly basis I think yeah and you know it's been interesting because your podcast you know you were talking about how it changed at the beginning with all the voices and stuff you were doing but I feel like it's evolved as well in that as you've traveled it's traveled as well and for a while it was really mindful and very very it was a very different tone whereas you know it's, it's got such drive now. I hope that's not me speaking out of turn, but it just feels like it's evolving with you, which is really cool. Yeah, that is really cool. And I was, again, in listening to the one, the one that we did, um, it was interesting to see and to hear the chat, like the way that it has evolved, not only the way that I asked the questions, but also I'm listening to it going, I, should have, I could have edited it a lot better and like the, the sort of production, all the different elements that have evolved. It's nice to kind of be able to have some objectivity of it. Yeah, well, that's good. You want to be able to look back on your work and know that you've grown. It'd be weird if you're like, oh, I've just never never lived up to that first episode. That'd be a terrible feeling. <laughs> yeah, well, that interview with NATO. Uh, um, last time I asked you this question, uh, your answer was you're dancing and you said that no one would ever see it in public, which I assume on whose line is it anyway, they probably did. But the question is what makes you silly now? Hmm... Hmm, that's an interesting question. Nobody did see me dance on Whose Line Is It Anyway? So the dancing is still something that, thank the Lord, nobody's ever going to see. I don't know. It's an interesting thing. Silly. What makes me silly? My partner and I have a very different closed-door persona than we do. You know how with with your partner you're always just, yeah, far sillier? I'd probably say the world we inhabit in this house, yeah. Is that a boring answer? No, that's a fairly common answer. Oh, is it really? But... I give follow. <laughs> well, people say partner or kids or alcohol or you know those kind of things. But then I follow up with, "What do you do that's silly?" Um, I find I don't know. I annoy him a lot. He got in trouble last night because I snuck up behind him and he screamed and then I laughed and it was really bad because he was like, it's not funny. I was like, ah, I do pranks a lot. Um, I have really good Nerf guns. I like those a lot. I find people 
in underwear look ridiculous and I they do people look ridiculous bodies are funny bodies are funny strange things and I don't think people actually this is something women's bodies aren't often allowed to be funny like if Here's one thing I noticed on um, Whose Line Is It Anyway? The men could at times whip off their shirt or whip off their pants and it would be the punchline to a joke and everybody would be like, oh, he's in his underwear, this is funny. If a woman were to do the same thing, it would immediately have a sexual connotation. Like if one of us had whipped off our top and just stood there in our bra, it would have been like, oh, that's a bit awkward or inappropriate or like, hello, look at her boobs. Women aren't given the opportunity for their bodies just to be ridiculous and funny and weird and make bizarre shapes. And it's a shame because bodies are ridiculous. And yeah, I hope it's something that gets to change soon where you can, where women's bodies aren't always wrong or sexy. Like they're either in that bracket, they're either ugly or sexy. They're never just like, oh yeah, that's that's pretty funny. That's great. Yeah, that's something interesting. Hmm. Hmm. Well, thank you very much, Tegan. <laughs> what a weird little tangent to go out on. I mean, nipples, ridiculous. What the hell's an areola? What is it? Isn't it like a dip for chips? I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs>